I wonder if you have a favorite Christmas carol. Any of, can any of you think of a, famous, a, a favorite Christmas carol that you have? I know that for so many of us, this season is a special time of year, and a lot of that is due just to the music that we have. When I was young, my favorite Christmas carol was Silent Night, but I'm musically deficient, and I think it was really because it was an easy one to pluck out on the piano. And as I've become an adult, there are so many that I love, but Oh Holy Night and I Heard the Bells are a few of my favorites because they're beautiful and rousing, and they tell a story. They proclaim God's faithfulness to us through the birth of Jesus. So the beginning of Luke, in the first two chapters, people keep bursting into songs, people and angels. And this morning, we'll be talking about the song of Zechariah, perhaps one of the very first Christmas carols. As we look at these passages that were read this morning by the Chungs, we'll talk about Gabriel's proclamation, Zechariah's proclamation, and John the Baptist's proclamation. So why don't you open your Bibles, and we'll start with the story of Zechariah, which can be found in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In your pew Bibles, this is on page 933. So as Ashley and Evan read this morning, the book of Luke opens with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see that they're both of priestly families, so therefore their marriage would have been a cause of great joy and expectation. This was essentially one priest marrying the daughter of another priest, and priests were held in high regard. But also in those days, there was a high regard for childbearing. Israelite women essentially lived for one thing, to have children. And if they were barren, not only was there the sadness of not having a growing, busy family, but there was also the public shame and humiliation that came with it. To have children was considered a great blessing, but to not have children was considered a curse. In verse 6, we read that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. I actually find it's interesting that these two descriptions go together because they didn't always. In fact, John the Baptist and Jesus often called out the religious leaders of the day. And I think it could have been said of those religious leaders that they were also careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. But rather than congratulate them for their righteousness, John the Baptist and Jesus referred to the religious leaders as hypocrites because they had the right outer behaviors without hearts of love and mercy. So here, when Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, it seems to indicate that he's crediting them for more than just right behavior. He's actually indicating that their obedience came from their hearts. We also know from the text that Zechariah and Elizabeth were old, very old at this point, which probably means that life had been disappointing for them and maybe especially because they were of this priestly line. Their lives were dedicated to serving God. And it's easy when we dedicate our lives to serving God to start believing that God, in response to our faithfulness, needs to do certain things, that our lives should look a certain way. And sometimes we don't even realize that we have these expectations until they start falling apart in front of our eyes when we don't get that great job we were hoping for, or our children choose a different path, or we don't have children, or we struggle with overwhelming anxiety and depression. Can't God fix these things? Do you ever feel this way? Do you wonder why God allows these long-term disappointments in your life? Unknowingly, we can start to think that we've done a lot for God and he kind of owes us. 
But that's not how Zechariah and Elizabeth responded. Zechariah could actually have divorced Elizabeth on the basis of childlessness, but he didn't. They were faithful to each other and to God, despite the fact that for them, life hadn't turned out the way it was supposed to. It's also worth noting that for the Jewish people, this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth would have reminded them of another old couple who were also long past childbearing years when God did the miraculous and gave them a child, Abraham and Sarah. It was to Abraham and Sarah that God made the promise that all families on earth will be blessed through you. And now, 2,000 years later, God is using another old, barren couple to fulfill that promise. So we find in verses 8 and 9 that Zechariah was serving God in the temple for his order was on duty that week. So Jewish priests were ministers who were responsible to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, teach the scriptures, and direct worship. And at this time, there were about 20,000 priests in all of Israel, which was far too many to be serving at the temple. So these were kind of reservist priests. They were served during the year in their hometown, and then once a year, they'd be called to the temple to serve. So while serving at the temple, each morning, a priest would be responsible to enter the holy place and to offer incense. This was a great honor, one that priests always hoped for, but it wasn't a sure thing. They actually cast lots, which today would be the equivalent of flipping a coin, to determine who would go in to offer incense and to pray for the people. But this time, it wasn't luck or circumstance that chose Zechariah to be the incense burner. It was God's perfect timing. So Zechariah entered the holy place to spread coals on the altar, burn the incense, and offer prayers of intercession for the people of Israel. And while Zechariah was praying, we're told that an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to him standing to the right of the incense altar. The significance of this is easy to miss, especially if we're not familiar with the Jewish story. You see, from the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God had called the Israelites his chosen people. He had established covenants with them, delivered them from the Egyptians. He led them in the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He gave gave them the promised land and the Torah. He sent judges to guide them, and then he sent prophets to call them back to obedience and faithfulness. God had been actively, visibly engaged with his people. And then it seemed to stop. God became silent. You see, the last prophet who spoke God's word to the Israelites was Malachi, who lived 400 years before Zechariah. And for almost 600 years now, the Persians, Greeks, the Babylonians first, and the Egyptians and Syrians and Romans had all taken over and oppressed the Jewish people. So at this point, they probably didn't feel much like God's chosen. So it wasn't just the angel's appearance that would have been stunning to Zechariah. It was the fact that the angel was bringing God's word. No wonder he was shaken and overwhelmed. But the angel Gabriel reassured him, as angels always seem to do, that he doesn't need to be afraid, that God has heard his prayers. Now, because we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were very old, I think it's doubtful that Zechariah was actually there praying for a child. Instead, he was fulfilling his priestly role to intercede for Israel. He was praying for the coming of the Messiah. The Jewish people were oppressed, powerless, and defeated, and their hearts longed for the promised Messiah to come and deliver them. So I have to believe that the angel's next words to Zechariah, that Elizabeth would become pregnant and give birth to a son, 
had to be about as shocking as the fact that the long-awaited Messiah was, was finally coming. God was answering both of Zechariah's prayers, the prayer for a Messiah, as well as the prayer that he had long ago stopped praying for a child. God's timing is good. So often we ask God for certain things and our hearts break when he doesn't answer how we want and when we want. Zechariah and Elizabeth just wanted a baby. But God had something so much bigger in mind. We often see just our own lives, but that's just a tiny sliver of all that God is concerned about and sovereign over. In this story, we see that God chose this couple and their child and this exact time in history to usher in his kingdom. So with a mighty angel miraculously standing before him, Zachariah was understandably shaken, and he did what so many of us would do. He doubted. I actually love the angel's response to him because it's so logical. Zechariah says, how can I be sure this will happen? And the angel responds, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to bring you this good news. Because really, having an angelic being standing in front of Zechariah should have been enough to convince him that God was clearly able to do things that we think of as impossible. And in the next chapter, in fact, when the same angel appears to Mary, we see a different response. She too asks questions about how things will happen, but her questions come out of curiosity rather than a spirit of doubt. I think how we would respond to the prophecy of a supernatural angel has everything to do with where our focus is. Do we have eyes to see God's power and goodness? Or are we so focused on our own human problems and limitations that we're unable to believe. So the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that because of his unbelief, he would be unable to speak until the birth of this child. Zechariah came out of the holy place, did his best without speaking to offer the customary priestly blessing on the confused crowd. He finished out his week of service in the temple and went home. And just as the angel Gabriel prophesied, Elizabeth became pregnant even in her old age. So now let's move to the end of Luke 1, which Julia read this morning. This is Zechariah's song. Zechariah has been mute for nine months now. That's a long time to be quiet. For some of you married to talkers, imagining your spouse being quiet for even nine hours might feel like a miracle. I actually mentioned that to Byron last night, and he said nine minutes, which I was a little offended by, but that's okay. So the baby is born, and Elizabeth and Zechariah are faithful to the angel's instructions to name him John, which apparently is a bit of a shock to everyone. Once Zechariah wrote on a tablet, his name is John, we're told that his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and this beautiful prophetic song is the result. He proclaims God's goodness and faithfulness, both to the nation of Israel and to him personally. The name Zechariah means Jehovah remembers, God remembers. And the name Elizabeth means oath or promise of God. Together, they become God remembers God's promises. And that is exactly what Zechariah proclaimed. God made a covenant with Abraham to bless all peoples of the earth through him. And he promised to send a savior and king from the line of David to redeem the people of Israel. And now is the time that God has chosen to make good on his promises. 
It's striking to notice the certainty of Zachariah's belief at this point. His son John is a newborn baby only eight days old, and the Messiah isn't even born yet. But even so, Zechariah proclaims Christ's coming in the past tense as though it has already happened. He says, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Gabriel's appearance and Elizabeth's pregnancy and now John's birth are enough for Zechariah to know without question that God's salvation was truly at hand, that God had already accomplished things that hadn't even happened yet. So on the second Sunday of Advent, Zachariah's song can become our song. We can sing joyful songs and hymns of praise for Christ's first coming as a baby in Bethlehem, and we can just as surely know that one day Christ will come again in power and glory to usher his kingdom in fully and to make all things right. So in these first verses of Zechariah's song, he recounts hundreds of years of God's sovereign work in history. And then the last few verses, his, his, his focus changes, and his description of God's faithfulness becomes intimately personal. Zechariah turns his attention to his eight-day-old son, John. And you, my little son, he begins. It's so tender. Zechariah delights in knowing that his son will be called the prophet of the Most High, that he will prepare the way for the Lord. At this point, Zechariah and Elizabeth must have been holding so tightly to those words spoken by Gabriel in the holy place. Zechariah knows and proclaims that John will point people to the coming Messiah. So Zechariah's praise is twofold. Blessing God for answering both of his prayers, the deep longing of all of Israel for a Messiah, and for and Zechariah and Elizabeth's deep, dull ache of longing for a child to love. Longing. It's a theme of Advent. During these few weeks before Christmas, we pay attention to the longing of our hearts. There are so many little things we all want. A good parking space, or a tasty dinner, or a good night's sleep. But longing indicates a deeper yearning, a desire for those things you haven't yet received or experienced, the things you're waiting a long time for. What do you long for? Think about it for a minute. And Really, I'm going to give us a few seconds. I want you to take time and think about what are the deep desires of your heart. I know for me, I long for my daughter to be healed, for the people I love to come to know the mercy and love of Jesus, for forgiveness and healing from deep emotional wounds in my family, for freedom from addiction. And on an even bigger scale, I long for world peace. <laughs> I know it sounds like a joke, but it really is a deep desire of my heart. I long for a world where we encourage generosity and we live sacrificially and we serve others regularly, and not just serving their interest, but supporting their humanity and dignity, and thereby finding our own. So like Zechariah, we wait. And also like Zechariah, we can know that one day our longing for heaven will be fulfilled. Because when we see the ugliness of this world and we long for something better, we're longing for heaven. 
We're longing for the day when God will live with us and wipe away our tears like a tender, loving, embracing parent. For the day when there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain, when we'll be fully reconciled with God and at peace with one another. So Zechariah's prayers of longing are answered. God's tenderness is at hand. Zechariah's song was fulfilled by Jesus' first coming, and it will be so when Jesus comes again. So we'll finish by looking at the beginning of John's ministry. He's an adult now, and as we turn to Luke chapter 3, it seems we need a history lesson to understand all of these various characters and the time frame. And sometimes we skip sections like this because they're these difficult foreign names and we don't know what they mean, but they actually tell us a lot about the backdrop against which John began his ministry. Those first five names are of Roman rulers of Israel at the time. And at best, they tolerated the Jews. At worst, they were cruel and spiteful. And then we're told that there were two high priests. Now, the Jewish law said that there should be one high priest and that that person would serve until death when the next high priest would be appointed. But in fact, the Romans had deposed of the first high priest and put a second high priest in it in his place. So we're seeing that the whole Jewish system is not working the way it was supposed to. So we can understand that this was a time of political and spiritual darkness for the Israel people. And in that setting, Luke says, a message from God came to John. Again, remember it had been 400 years since a prophet of God had spoken Israel. So crowds gathered in the wilderness to hear John. It's actually kind of shocking to think that so many people sought him out. He wasn't cool. He wasn't relevant. In fact, if there were, if there were rules about how to market your ministry and create a following, John wasn't paying attention. He lived alone in the desert. He wore clothes woven of coarse camel hair, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He sounds like a real attractive guy, right? But the people were desperate to hear the word of God. They were living in a difficult time. Their world was a hopeless mess, and it seemed that God had long ago forgotten them. They needed hope of a God who keeps his promises, a God who is involved in the human story, a God who saves and redeems. And it's not so different for us today, is it? I don't know about you, but I admit that sometimes I avoid watching the news because I find it so depressing. We live in a time and a place where mass shootings are becoming commonplace. Natural disasters seem to be happening left and right. We're constantly afraid of terrorist attacks, and our political system is rife with distrust and vitriol. There are wars and famines and genocides and bombings, and I could go on and on. And all of these things remind us that we are broken people living in a broken world. So today, people are hungry too. They see brokenness all around them and desperately need a source of hope. They need to hear the word of God, the good news that God loves them, that God is involved in our lives, in our story, and that God has sent a savior to redeem us. So if we, like Zechariah and John, can proclaim God's faithfulness to his people and his promises, then we're the ones who can offer hope to a broken, needy world. The one final thing, it's interesting to note that John preached a baptism of repentance. What does a baptism of repentance mean? 
The New Living Translation puts it this way. John preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Now, this was actually a strange thing, because baptism was customary in those days, but essentially for Gentile converts converting to Judaism, not for those who were already Jewish. Jewish people would have assumed that they were already in. Repentance and baptism may have been necessary for their Gentile neighbors, but not for them. And here we have John the Baptist telling the Jewish people that repentance, symbolized by being washed and cleansed through baptism, was the necessary first step in preparing for the Messiah. I think it's an especially good lesson for those of us who are Christ followers. Self-righteousness can work its way into our spirits without our awareness. We sometimes think we know how other people need to change or what they need to give up or do differently, all the while thinking we're okay. But following Jesus doesn't work that way. We may have received the gift of salvation through the blood of Christ, but after that, we're in for a lifelong process of examining our own hearts and making a conscious choice with God's help to turn away from sin, from any behavior, attitude, or identity that separates us from God. This is why we practice confession at WCF each Sunday, both corporately and individually. We want to make it a weekly, if not daily, practice of examining our own hearts and repenting of anything that takes God's place in our lives or dishonors God. In Psalm 139, David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you, and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Repentance was the necessary inner work that John encouraged people to do in order to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. So let's pray that God might give us eyes to see ourselves honestly, so that, like the Israelites waiting for the Messiah, we can confess, repent, and make room for Jesus.